Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we have emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. And today we have Josh Jones, CEO of StrategyWise, and his Director of Operations, Josh Cerulnik. Guys, I'm so delighted to have you on the show this morning. Good morning, Sergeant. It's great to be with you today. Yeah. And so uh, you guys specialize in, in data science and data analytics, which is you know pretty heady, heady stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in, in, big, uh, in big data, data analytics that you think are, are important trends for CEOs to know about? So, you know, I'd, I'd love to, and this is actually what I believe to be a very important topic because uh, as a consulting firm at heart, what we see you know, working with a number of C-suite executives um, is a very common trend in that as data science uh, is growing in popularity, um, we're realizing a lot of people really aren't familiar with what it is and what it means. Uh, and that's not something to be concerned about. I think with the way technology goes, sometimes these things pop up really fast. And uh, I've, I've met with numerous CEOs and executives in the last even month or two uh, that we sit down and they say, just tell me what is data science and what is big data and data analytics. So I do think it's a very relevant topic for today. Um, and I'm thinking it might be helpful just to uh, unpack it a little bit and talk about how we got to data science and maybe uh, explain just a, a few of the differences between the different terms like big data, data analytics, business intelligence, and that sort of thing, just to give everyone a, a platform before we talk about how it actually applies to their business. All right, go ahead. Sure. So um, if you actually, probably the best history would be if you think about uh, an analogy, um, a little over 100 years ago, Conan Arthur Doyle wrote, uh, the Sherlock Holmes series, uh, you know, great series everyone is familiar with, the world-famous detective. And this is, is an interesting story because it's based off a real character, Joseph Bell, who is a head surgeon at the Royal Infirmary of Scotland. And many people credit him with being sort of the father of modern-day forensic science. And what uh, Doyle did was, was he talked about a detective who could see these disparate pieces of data around him in the world. And whether it's mud on someone's pant leg or... Um, whatever it may be, they would piece these uh, pieces of data together and essentially create this new story um, from all of these seemingly unrelated pieces of data. Business intelligence in data analytics is essentially doing that. It's finding all this information that's inundating us in the world, whether it's Twitter feeds or uh, social media or it's purchase transactions, and it's bringing those all together to create some sort of new useful piece of information for business application. Now, Josh, is it use more useful in certain industries or certain for certain applications than in others? No, it's really useful anywhere. Um, I would say it's about the same everywhere. Any organization that has large amounts of data, uh, again, whether it's uh, customer reviews, whether it's uh, foot traffic, uh, it could be traffic patterns. It could be uh, any kind of historical information. Anywhere there's large amounts of data being created, you can use it really equally. So tell me, what is the kind of question that a CEO would ask that you can use big data or data analytics to answer powerfully? I think one of the first questions that, that CEOs need to ask is, what, what is all the data exhaust that we're currently ignoring? And by data exhaust, I mean, what is all the data that's being created that is currently not being used or analyzed or captured in any way? So 
There, there are thousands of consumer preferences uh, that are being being released, if you will, that um, are just not currently being analyzed. A quick example for you is if you think about the way the Nest thermostat has taken over part of the home automation segment. It used What's to be that? People would, the what? The Nest thermostat. Okay. Uh, so if you think of your traditional thermostat, you walk down the hall, it's that old round Honeywell thermostat. Someone walks down the hall, turns the temperature up or down a couple times a day. Nest came along and said, let's, let's capture that data and let's put that in a smart device. And so now you have this Nest thermostat, which is similar to your old thermostat, but it's internet connected. And every time you change that temperature, it captures that data. And so after a period of time, they can begin to learn when you turn the temperature up and when you turn it down, anticipate your preferences and begin doing that for you. That's a very simple example of how a company realized that there's data out there being generated, which is that customer preference. They begin to capture that and use that for a business purpose. Okay, so let's take it up a level. Um, a CEO may have you know, a certain set of business issues or decisions that they need to make, right? That they want to figure out how to use data to get them more intelligence to make that decision more powerfully or more accurately or more optimally. Tell me about some of the kinds of large, big business issues that you've seen your CEO clients actually use data to, to powerfully get some answers to. Well, sure. So, um, I'll give you one example. The Birmingham Zoo is a client of ours, and their interest was in better anticipating how many people are coming to the zoo every day. Uh, if, you, if you know a, a much better, accurate picture on the daily attendance in the zoo, uh, you can do things like resource planning, staff planning, more proactive marketing, and so forth. And so what we did is we helped them capture existing data that was in front of them. So this is data from their current uh, zoo management system, their, um, their souvenir shop, and so forth. We brought all that data together. But then we went outside of that and began to look for external data like uh, weather patterns, uh, high and low temperatures, rainfall forecasts, school calendars. And we brought all that together to create a predictive formula that we could plug into an executive dashboard. So now the executive team at the zoo can see a much better predictive formula of how many people are going to show up at the zoo each day. And given uh, you know a dozen or so variables that we've plugged into there, we have a much more um, predictive model that they can use that then goes into the resource planning. So you can basically help the zoo predict how many people, how many customers are going to get on a given day. Exactly. That's huge. And and what other kinds of things are you finding that you're able to predict? Well, it's really uh, across the board. Uh, there's just amazing ways that companies are using this. Uh, I'll give you a quick story. Uh, you know, un unfortunately, a lot of our clients prefer we don't talk about some of their internal projects, but I think one uh, a project, not that we did, but all your listeners will be um, familiar with, if you will, is is the way Netflix is using data. Uh, you know, it seems like everybody's getting on the Netflix these days. And a couple years ago, they made a major shift in the way they do business. And uh, if you've ever used their online site, either for DVDs or online streaming, you know that you can go in there and actually rate uh, how much you like a movie. So give it three, four, or five stars. So a couple years ago, Netflix decided to get into the content creation series, and this is about 2012, 2013. And when the House of Cards series was originally floated as a possibility, they actually were bidding against, um, I believe it was HBO and AMC. And what they did is they looked at how many of their customers had rated highly the previous House of Cards series in the BBC. They then looked at how many people had rated David Fincher produced movies, uh, how many people liked Kevin Spacey movies. So they were able to capture all of that data, bring it together, and really for the first time, instead of saying how much are you likely to like some other movie in our catalog, 
they were able to predict how likely someone would be to like a movie that had never been seen before. So they made a hundred billion, a hundred million dollar bet to win the House of Cards series, and it was hugely successful. Uh, and as you've seen this year, just the amount of original content from Netflix is is going to be over five hundred hours. So Netflix has really changed the way. Um, they're doing business in terms of being just a content provider to a content creator. And how do you think about, or question should be, do you think about privacy concerns and, you know, the whole not just big data, but big brother thing? Or, I mean, I think maybe some people have just given up on the concept of privacy altogether. Um, I mean, do you think about that at all? Absolutely. There's there's a huge uh, trade-off between privacy and convenience. And, uh, and it's not always a one-to-one relationship, but, uh, but essentially, um, as you're willing to trade off more of your privacy, you gain more convenience. And so, um, you know, in, in the case of Netflix, you're willing to give up a little bit of information about your preferences and your viewing habits for the convenience of being recommended uh, some new movie that you might like. Now, the challenging part about this, though, and, and I think this is you, you'll see this in the younger generation, they're more willing to sacrifice that privacy. And I think maybe they've growing up with just less of a notion of that privacy and, and the idea that you're always owned, you're always connected, you're always um, in, you know, in the network, so to speak. But if you look at the vast amounts of data being created uh, from credit card transactions, uh, just across the board, telephone calls, text messages, social media engagements, more and more it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to um, have that privacy that they would like. Um, so with the example of Netflix with all of these, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of users worldwide, um, if they just know six reviews, if you just take randomized data and you look at six reviews from Netflix, they're 84% accurate in identifying the unique individual. And if they know the date of one of those reviews, then they can guess which individual that is with 99% accuracy. And that's not to say that Netflix um, is Big Brother per se, but just the amount of data that's out there is making it increasingly likely to piece together from anonymous data and be able to identify uh, who individuals are. And how is that being done? Just by the the way that the review is written and the are they using like... No, that's just the number of stars. Oh. It's just a mathematical formula. Just uh, if you, uh, again, to that Sherlock Holmes example, just the more data points you leave out there, the more able you are to piece together um, a, a unique individual row from the data. Mm-hmm. And and I think the reason one of the reasons why I was really excited to have you on the show is I think this is going to be important to pretty much every single business um, and become more and more important as as the years pass. And so in terms of real business issues that CEOs may be able to to think about how to use their data and it doesn't may not necessarily be big data. It might be little data. Um are you finding that it's relevant in sales and marketing and operations? Sure. And let, let, yeah, go ahead. Let me jump in there and share a story that maybe maybe ties those together well, because uh, I think the privacy concern is really important, but it's also the, the, the question of application is, is obviously highly relevant. Um, and a couple of years back uh, in a Midwestern Target store, um, this, this is a true story, by the way. A man walked into the Target store, was just really angry, asked to speak to the manager, and basically just was was furious. And he tells the manager, he slams his coupon book down on the manager's desk. And it's one of those red Target coupon books you, you may be familiar with. And this coupon book was full of all of these pregnancy-related coupons. And the manager's furious. And he said, how dare you send this to my 16-year-old daughter? She's still in high school. 
um, you know, she's not married, so forth and so on. And the, and the manager was was obviously embarrassed and apologetic and, and so forth. And, and so much so that a few days later, the manager called this guy back to apologize again. He felt so bad about it. Uh, and the man said, well, actually, it's it's I that owes you an apology. Apparently, there's some things going on in my house that I was unaware of. And it turns out that Target had anticipated that this man's daughter was pregnant before he was you know, even aware of it. And it's become a little bit of an infamous story. Um, but, uh, you know, Target learned a lot of lessons from that. Um, the just the in terms of the, you know, the question of privacy and, and how much do you know about your customers too much? And what they had done essentially is looked at uh, purchasing patterns over millions and millions of customers. And uh, and now um, I, I understand that they can actually predict the due date. Uh, of individuals. <laughs> wow. Look closely enough at their their transactions. So so to the big brother concern, certainly it's there. Um, but on the other hand, you know, what Target learned from that is um, there's a certain line that we need to draw in terms of how much we, how comfortable we make our customers feel, for lack of a better phrase. And so you know, what they've done is they've backed off that a little bit, and now they're sending those same types of targeted coupons, but they're also going to throw uh, some lawnmower ads and some uh, some random uh, coupons that seem make you feel like, hey, everybody on my street is getting this coupon book. But I share that because there's there's both the privacy issue there, but there's also the issue that uh, the whole point of Target sending coupons is to incentivize uh, people to become customers or to continue to make purchases. So as much as possible, you want to send them relevant coupons, and you want to send them coupons for things that you really feel like are appropriate for them, but that may not have otherwise bought that would get them into the store. And so that's where the power of big data comes in, is being able to target that market with what's most relevant. The question is, how do you do that while also not overstepping those boundaries of that trade-off, if you will, of privacy and convenience? So, Josh, our listeners are typically CEOs in the middle market, right? So not huge Target, Netflix, behemoths. Sure. Can you talk to us a little bit about how medium-sized companies can look at using data more powerfully in their firms to empower their decision-making? Absolutely. So uh, there, there are a couple different ways that we use uh, big data. You've got, um, you've got sort of what, what tends to fall in the category of business intelligence, which is looking at past historical transactions and understanding where your, co- where your company is. Uh, you've also got things in the middle where you're understanding your customers better, so market segmentation, clustering, and so forth. And then you've got the predictive analytics. With, with, this is essentially trying to anticipate, you know, forecasting what's going to happen in the future. Um, so for, for a medium-sized business uh, that takes transactional data, and you see someone came in your store uh, you know, a month ago and made a purchase, that's, that's information. But if you, if you know that same customer came into your store um, every month for the last 12 months uh, but hasn't been in your store for the last two or three months, you might infer that that's a customer you're about to lose. Uh, you know, a, practice, a practical example would be a dental practice. You know, they recommend that you come back for your cleaning every six months. Um, so it's not hard for us to look in dental practice records and identify customers who haven't been to the practice in, say, 9 to 12 months and say, here's a sales list. Here's a list of people that you need to call first. And it, knowing that these people may be customers you're about to lose and anticipate this is going to be um, where you need to start in terms of uh, trying to bring people back into the business. Um, so there's that. There, there's a certain amount of data that even uh, medium-sized companies, if they begin capturing that data, that transactional data, there are a number of ways you can look at that and begin to say um, what infer different business practices. Again, whether it's creating lead lists of potential lost customers, better planning inventory, 
uh, better planning staffing, and so forth. So let me just go take you back a second. Repeat those different kinds of analyses that you, you said market segmentation, business intelligence, predictive an, um, analytics. Give give us those big um, blocks again of different Absolutely. kinds of, of, uh, so the, of analysis. The first is sort of that business intelligence uh, area where it's more of historical data. So so what has been happening uh, in our in our company? Uh, and so from think from this type of information, you can you can infer information like seasonality. We tend to do better in the first quarter, fourth quarter. A lot of the historical information. Business owners with their finger on the pulse of the business are going to know a lot of these uh, intuitively. And so there's going to be a sense of feeling like, well, I know my business really well. I've run it for 30 years. I know I know who's ordering what and so forth. The challenge, however, comes when you transition from a single store to a franchise model or from one store to 10 or or if you open up an Internet presence. Or, you uh, know, in many you, cases with CEOs, when you when you have to bring in a successor, right? And, and yeah, and there's no, uh, the business intelligence is all in the, the CEO's head and that's not very helpful. Absolutely. And so, so the more that you can, you can put, um, weight nets out there, if you will, to capture that historical data, um, you can use that now and you can use that in the future in terms of analyzing, um, useful tips for your business. So that first bucket I mentioned is really the historical side of things. Uh, that second bucket is really in, in more in the present, if you will, understanding who your customers are. Uh, how they behave and how they act. Uh, so this is where we get market segmentation. Um, you know, typically, if if I ask a customer how much is, or if I ask one of our clients how much is a new customer worth to you, um, the the typical response is going to be it depends. And so in that it depends answer is where you often get your market segmentation. And normally we'll hear them describe different types of customers. Well, this customer buys once a year, or this bus customer's high volume, low margin low margin, high volume, this customer has specific needs and so forth. So taking your data, you can begin to look at what type of customers do we have. So there's the sort of the qualitative approach based on your just intuition of the business. Uh, this could be surveys with uh, people in the market, uh, or you could take a quantitative approach. And this is where we worked with one of our clients that had about a million customers. And, and that's and this is a medium to large business, but uh, through that process, we use a mathematical formula to create clusters or market segments, if you will, but essentially to tell them, these are your different types of buyers, and you should communicate differently with each of them, and you should spend different amounts of money to uh, on your marketing to capture uh, each of these customer bases. So as you look at your various clients, um, Josh, I'm really interested if you have a a set of analyses or a certain data that you think um, every business owner, every CEO should have, right? And you were talking about, well, you know, obviously Netflix is going to take a very different approach to market segmentation than a smaller um, $25 million company. Uh, I would love for you to, to give your perspective on what are the different kinds of data that you think are most important for CEOs to have a handle on and what are some approaches that to actually using to, to gathering that data, analyzing it, and then using it in the business? Absolutely. The, the more data that you can have in front of your analysis team, the better. Um, so think about uh, data that has high volume transactions. Um, so one of the first things we do with companies we work with, uh, particularly in that, in that middle sized company, medium uh, sized business area, um, you're going to have different um, uh, segments within your organization. You're going to have finance and accounting. You're going to have marketing, sales. Uh, so from finance and accounting, you might have 
um, whether using Sage or QuickBooks, you're going to have uh, transactional data, customer purchase history. So we might pull that data, and then we might go over to sales and marketing and look at uh, their CRM data, customer relationship management tools like Salesforce or Pipeline Deals, and we might extract that data. Um, and so you go around the business and gather as much of this as possible, and then we begin looking for ways that we can create crossovers and an analysis. And let me give you a practical example of a way a business that I think is one of the most simple ways that more businesses uh, don't take advantage of that they should. And that's your, your typical coffee shop, restaurant, or so forth. So many customers come through here uh, and make purchases on a regular basis, and these companies don't ever capture this information. Most good POS systems, uh, your, your typical cash registers, um, most, of, if not many of them, have a way to actually create customer loyalty programs. One of the benefits of customer loyalty is not that, you know, buy nine, get one free. It's not convincing someone to come back that 10th time because at that point, they're already pretty much locked in. The, the difference is if you can begin to capture and see um, how often does this customer come to my store? What kind of purchases are they making? And then the big data comes in or the data analytics comes in where you say, well, I've noticed that people that always buy this beverage over here, um, you know, 80% of them also buy this other beverage. So why don't we, why don't we send a mailer or some sort of marketing piece to the 20% who didn't buy it and say, hey, we noticed that people like you, you know, in different words, and people like you also like this over here. Have one on us. Here's a coupon. So that's why you, you combine data analytics and marketing uh, to uh, continue to grow your business. And how do you prioritize the the um the data that CEOs should be looking at for their business. So in some cases, uh, companies will have heard um, for whatever reason, maybe it's a mandate from the board, from from the market, wherever that you guys need to be using data analytics. Everybody else in your industry is you're not, uh, and they come to us and say we've got to figure out how to implement data in our company. And in fact, Harvard Business Review recently had showed a study where companies that implement data have a 5% higher profitability uh, than other companies in their industry. Um, so um, it, the companies that come to us just having heard, hey, we've got to do something with big data, it's, it's a new buzz. What we typically do is we start with a opportunity report where we come to the business and analyze all of the different data that's being collected and maybe all of the ways that data should be collected that is not. And then we create a list, a menu, if you will, of here's some ways that you can increase revenue. Here's some ways you can decrease expenses. Here's some ways you can boost your customer satisfaction or net promoter score. That's one option. Uh, sometimes companies will come to us and say, we've got a major pain point. Um, we really feel like our expenses over here are way too high, and we need to figure out a way to cut those down. So then with data analytics, you come in and you do things like you're analyzing their inventory control methods. Um, or it could be we want to boost sales. We want to do marketing. The problem is we're doing pay and pray marketing, meaning we spend some money, send some stuff out, and hope it works. <laughs> we want to tie metrics to that. So we'll come in and help them analyze what are your different marketing effort, efforts, how much are you spending in each category, what's a new customer worth to you, and what are those uh, ratios? So, so how much are you spending for each new customer that gets in the door? So there are the more metrics you can tie on things. You can actually go to sleep at night feeling good about your marketing plan, knowing that you know how much you're spending and what kind of results is bringing you. All right. So you said something that I, I want to go back and, and really ask if you meant that, which is you said it uh, – you know, more data is better. And I, and I do wonder if that's true. Um, is it, it, it feels to me like more data isn't always better. Um, especially if you're awash in it and you don't know how to actually use it powerfully to get, to get results. So 
Talk to me a little bit more about that. Mm. More choices is often bad. We, we've we've all heard the studies of um, where when you go beyond three, four choices into the five, ten, fifteen, um, you're you're more likely to lose the customer just by them being overwhelmed. Uh, but in the case of data, essentially what we're doing is feeding this into ever more powerful computing software that does a lot of the hard work for us. So as data scientists, once we're analyzing a uh, thousand rows versus ten thousand rows. There's, there's very little marginal, if any, effort that goes to go from that 1,000 to 10,000, but the predictive power is increased substantially, and more importantly, our ability to have confidence in, in what the numbers are saying. Um, so from a data analyst standpoint, uh, I, I understand how it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but the more of that we can capture, uh, the more options we have in um, putting together models and formulas to predict future outcomes. Yeah, so I think what I hear you saying is that more observations or data points are great, but on that opportunity analysis that you do, you don't give the CEO 20 different ways That's that they correct. could use the business intelligence and you know things all over their business that you're going to analyze. You help them narrow it down to the two or three um, analyses that are going to make the biggest difference. I think everyone who's implementing a new data science or data program uh, who has not done it before is going to be a little bit nervous. Uh, am I throwing money in a black hole or am I going to get some sort of results from this? Uh, and so and we're aware of that, and, and we as a company are, are on the same page in terms of we want our customers to see huge results early on so that they'll come back and, and allow us to do more in their business. So it's, it's in everyone's interest that the, the first data science implementation is one that's a huge uh, win-win uh, type scenario. So typically, we'll look at all of the different business opportunities out there and identify some of the ones that we think are the lowest hanging fruit. And we, as much as possible, put monetary values on the projects. And we say, you know, we believe if we implement this program over here, this is going to be the total cost savings or total revenue boost. And so then we typically we're going to prioritize those towards the ones that we feel are, are shortest implementation, biggest return on investment. Mm. And so how long does it take before most folks who are implementing some sort of data science program actually see see some sort of a result? It can be uh, from the actual implementation of the program. It can be anywhere from months or it can take years if it's a bigger long-term strategic shift. Uh, and again, that's going to depend on the size of the organization. Um, some of the low-hanging fruit, you can see things really within a few months. Uh, a lot of that just depends on what all is involved in the actual rollout uh, of the implementation. So, for example, if someone is doing a marketing campaign and they want to understand how effective is our marketing campaign, uh, that typically is going to, just the way marketing campaigns work, if you're doing, say, print mail and call centers, you're going to take a couple of months from going from design to actually things being mailed out and, and people turning around and calling and registering sales. So, in that three, four, five-month cycle, if we put tracking mechanisms in place there, um, people are going to start seeing the results of that and actually having real numbers that they can turn around and make decisions on and say, well, I'm not doing that campaign or I'm increasing the activity over here. Uh, so, again, that's going to take a few months on your earlier type projects. The Birmingham Zoo, uh, again, in their case, they wanted to predict daily attendance. And so once we implemented it, they were able to immediately start seeing uh, those those attendance numbers. Um, another quick example for you is in the de dental practice in the healthcare industry. Uh, a lot of the work we do there in terms of predicting patient behaviors, uh, patients showing up for their appointments, um, you know, we've created formulas to predict how likely someone is to miss their dental appointment. And that's the sort of thing that once you put that into place, that helps you start scheduling. Uh, it really goes into effect as soon as you actually start scheduling the next patient with that uh, type of application. 
Great. Great, great, great. <clears throat> at what size do you think that it it's relevant to start looking at a data to start looking at, at data analytics? Because for smaller companies, I imagine it's much less powerful. Is that correct? Um, yeah, if you're if you're new, I would say within the first couple of years of business, unless you're right off the bat having large amounts of uh, volume and transactions. I think more than anything, maybe it's not so much the age or the size of the company, but the amount of data that they have in front of them. So higher tech companies are going to see benefit from that early on. Uh, if you're a slow-moving uh, company, maybe with a few large customers, uh, then it's going to take longer. So again, the, the more data points you're likely to have, and again, you have to expand what you see as a data point. The more of those you have, the, the more quickly you can use the program. Interesting. And so how much how much transaction volume volume or at what transaction volume does it, do you think it becomes relevant? It really, uh, unfortunately, I have to say it really depends on the application and how complex it's going to be. Um, it can be anywhere from a few thousand data points, tens of thousands, um, uh, again, depending on what the application is going to be. Great, great, great. Well, thank you so much. And so now I want to turn the conversation um, to the second segment, which in which we always talk about the the CEO and and the relationships that you have that have made you successful. And so, um, Josh Sarulnik, who we're going to call JC, is also on the line. Hi, hi, JC. How are you? I'm doing well, Sweeney. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. And so, um, you guys have been working together for I believe a little bit under a year now. And Josh, I would love because you've sold a business before, Josh. Correct. Yes. Uh, yeah, we're actually going on two years now, and this is, uh, I believe it's either my fourth or fifth business. Oh, great. So <clears throat> tell me a little bit about how you think about building a team and, um, you know, how you, did the, the, you put together that synergy that has allowed you to have three, three successful exit events. Sure. So, so team. I think one of the one of the things that it, that has uh, occurred to me over the years is is teams, both internal and external. And what I mean by that is is uh, a vendor team. Um, so it's so critical to surround yourself with the right people, the right strategy, um, and that comes not only from inside the shop, which I think everyone in, instinctively knows, but also uh, your vendor team is everyone from your your attorney to your accountant uh, to your marketing team to um, anyone who you work with externally, um, that can play a major role. You know, for us, we have a large number of consultants uh, due to the specialized nature of a lot of our projects. We work with a lot of outside consultants. Uh, and in many cases, I would say this: our, our success as a business um, is, is significantly impacted by the people, uh, both internal and external, um, that we, we bring on board. You know, and that's been pretty much a universal statement from all the CEOs that we've had on the on the show. They, you know, the first thing that they say when we when I ask them what makes them successful is they say it's their team. So, JC, as you think about working on working with um, with Josh on strategy wise, what what are you learning about putting together a great team? Uh, it is extremely exciting and challenging to to find the right people and uh, plug them into the right uh, positions based on their skill set because um, we can find some some very highly experienced, highly skilled individuals, but based on the size of our company, um, you don't always want someone that is used to operating only in their uh, specific role. We need a lot of utility players who can help out um, 
virtually in every area and, and bring their expertise to uh, each part of our company. And and Josh, as you think about the people that you are hiring now or even in your previous companies, how do you think about, especially in your industry and in your field where technical expertise is so important, about personality and culture fit um, versus technical expertise? Which was, which one do you think is more important and, and how do you think about hiring for both? I think one of the most critical uh, elements to look at for a company in its, in its early stages uh, in the first couple of years, particularly when you've got less than 10 people, is that everyone has to wear multiple hats. And so there's this constant uh, trade-off paradigm of specialists versus generalists. Uh, so the entrepreneur, you know, a company of one has to do everything, sales, marketing, uh, HR, legal, and so forth. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, you, you begin outsourcing those uh, those things. But there are a lot of them that you just don't naturally instinctively outsource. As that company grows and you bring more and more people on board, uh, you begin finding the need to have uh, more and more skill sets covered. And so what we found is that early on, you know, I might have to balance 10 different hats and then you bring on a second person and now I'm delegating five. And so, but there's that challenge of when we bring this fifth person on, do we want them to be a specialist or do we still need them to cover these other two areas that we don't quite have the budget to hire for? Uh, and so that type of personality is a little bit contrary to what you typically see in, in corporations, you know, medium and large businesses where you're expected to fill one role, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, push one button, if you will, and you rely on all the different departments to get all of those things done. And so that's a, that's a major mental shift that people have to make when they step into a smaller entrepreneurial environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh- and I guess I was asking a slightly different question. Um, given that you have to have people who can do all this heavy analytical work, um, do you think in, in your experience, it's more important to hire for technical expertise or for cultural fit? I think if I'm forced to, to pick between the two, I'm going to go technical expertise. Um, cultural fit is incredibly important, but at the end of the day, um, if they can't get the job done technically, then we're a really happy, unsuccessful team. Great. And then you're, as you were looking at um, selling your, your previous businesses, Josh, how did you, how did you plan for the, the exit and um, managing the, the relationships around selling those businesses? So um, every time that I've started and sold a business has been a bit of a different uh, journey and adventure. Um, the, the first business I started was actually a technology company. Uh, as a teenager, I was traveling in Latin America and discovered well, the Internet was taking off and these Internet cafes were popping up everywhere with people coming in, paying to use uh, computers by the hour. At the time, there was no software to track that usage. And so I created some software uh, to manage that um, those interactions and began selling it. And that just kind of snowballed and ended up uh, doing that in eight different countries and um, came back to the U.S. And, and rolled that into an IT consulting firm. Uh, the first, the first exit was essentially a larger company coming along saying, uh, we love your customer base. We love your brand. We love your business. We want to buy it from you. Um, and it caught me a little bit by surprise. Um, and to be honest, I was 18 at the time. So I really didn't know what I was getting into, uh, but said sure. And, uh, next day I started another company and, and then that company ran for about seven years. And in that case, um, long story short, I, I, we had a desire to move to Asia. And so I decided to sell the business. Uh, in that case, we had one of our top customers was very interested uh, in purchasing the business. 
the third business I started in Japan, and uh, that business is one that I started to start from day one. And so that was a little bit of a different process. In that case, I built a business knowing uh, that I was going to exit. And so so the strategy was, was a little bit different. And, and JC, tell me a little bit about what it's like to work for somebody, a serial entrepreneur like like Josh. Um, it, it's great. There's a lot to learn and a lot of experience that, um, that I can really grow from seeing, seeing Josh's past success. It's, um, it's, it's a great environment to be in because you know that uh, you're with someone who has, has done it before and been successful before. So, uh, even though it's still a, a risky entrepreneurial environment, um, there's a lot more confidence in the the whole process. Mm. And what specifically do you are the most important things that you're learning as you as you've worked with him over the past couple of years? The really the growth strategy of um, how to bring on add add team members at the right time because uh, that's really a critical a critical part of the journey of, of building a business because um, especially as a services company we don't want to get too far ahead of our client demand, but at the same time, we don't want to be uh, too far behind as well with, with the uh, capacity. Uh, so it's a definitely a great juggling act um, that I've learned a lot from Josh. Um, great. And so uh, what are some of the things, uh, both Josh and JC, that you anticipate for strategy-wise as you look forward? And um, what do you expect uh, going forward in the areas of data data science? What are you What are you looking forward to over the next few years? Hmm. I think it's a very it's a very exciting industry right now. Um, there are estimates that I believe it was IBM that was saying there are going to be four point four million data science related jobs uh, by the end of the year uh, worldwide, and uh, only a third of those had been filled. So there's a huge uh, there's a huge supply issue. Uh, more and more companies are realizing that data science can boost their profitability, boost their effectiveness, and they want to get involved. Uh, but due to the unique skill set, it requires of strategy, statistics, and IT. Um, all three of those being together in harmony is a little bit of a challenge to bring together. Uh, so the the ability for companies to integrate data in a meaningful way is becoming one of the increasingly important things. And so. Um, many of the challenges we've faced over the last year is more demand than we can meet up with. Uh, so it's, it's great for us as a business because uh, it simplifies sales, uh, but in terms of bringing on the right people, um, the, you know, the, the, as the saying goes, companies at our stage are more likely to die from indigestion than starvation. And so are you having problems sourcing talent? Is that a, a big challenge for you? It is. Uh, it is. We're, we're certainly finding some good talent. Uh, but in terms of having our choice, we're having to look far and wide. Uh, we are now recruiting coast-to-coast in um, more than half a dozen schools where we're actively going to uh, career fairs, recruiting on job boards, working with the career services departments, uh, recruiting on every major job board out there. Uh, but certainly uh, getting top talent is one, of our, is one of our key priorities right now. And one of the things that I, and I've seen, and this is kind of out of your industry, but I'm wondering how you, how you think about it, because I know a lot of of CEOs do think about talent a lot, given that the team is one of the most important factors in their success. I mean, there's a lot, of, there's a dearth from what I understand of math and science talent in the United States. Um, and how are you thinking about that as you, as you plan for your company's growth? 
so so uh, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, finding good math and science uh, education programs to, to partner with uh, is key. Uh, part of that is us developing more and more training in-house. Um, so we're we're willing to meet people closer and closer to where they're at in terms of finding the right core skill set and then training for some of those specifics. So uh, that's certainly something we've been focusing on is, is how do we develop some of those in-house training programs where um, we test for the right general aptitudes and, and mindsets and skill sets uh, in general, but then you bring in bring uh, the talent in and do a lot of that once we've actually got them here. So, uh, for example, we're expanding our internship program to um, ideally that you know the best people we're going to hire are the ones that are interns that have already worked f- with us for a semester or more. Great. And what changes are you looking forward to? Company-wise, do you have any like new services or white papers or anything that you anticipate sharing with the world in in the upcoming months? Um, absolutely, we don't we don't have a specific uh, launch to announce at this point. However, we're continuing to recruit uh, top talent to really help us uh, in that area. We're focusing very heavily right now in the healthcare space. Um, one of our newest uh, hires is a senior statistician, uh, Dr. Kevin Pan. He's uh, received his PhD from Stanford University. And statistics and bioinformatics, and he and I are actually working on a number of uh, healthcare-related projects. So, um, using this in uh, small and large healthcare facilities for predicting patient flow, uh, anticipating demand, um, and that sort of thing is going to be something you're going to see a lot more from us uh, in the next year. But you know, we work in a number of sectors, and um, but that's that's probably the most forthcoming one. Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for being on the show. It's been Absolutely wonderful to have you. If if listeners want to get in touch with you to talk with you about anything that they've heard, how can they do that? Yeah, so simple ways, uh, strategywise.com is our website. And our phone number is 888-623-DATA. That's 888-623-6232. Thank you so much for a great show today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at AnonaEnterprises.com.